and welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the busy intersection of faith and reason. I'm Doug Keck, the gatekeeper here at the Mothership. Uh, of course, your questions are so important to this program. Email them to us at Spitzer's Universe, one word at EW10.com. Check out all of Father Spitzer's websites, Magis Center one and the Credible Catholic one and the Purposeful Universe one. They're all different and uh, targeted for different groups. So check each one out, see which one works best for you. And Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EWTN On Demand page, and it's totally in demand. It's also on our YouTube channel, and we just posted, in addition, some additional programming, great sermons featuring a great one by St. Justin Martyr, part of a new series. We'll be adding new shows in the future. And this EWTN original drama recalls St. Justin Martyr's famous defense of Christianity against Roman persecution. This and other great programs always on demand, of course, and uh, I think we could use that against some persecution we're experiencing in the world today, <laughs> even in the United States. Our topic, the deadly sins and uh, Sunset Boulevard. We're going to get into that later, too. That's a little <laughs> tease from Father's book, Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives, available through the EWTN Religious Catalog. Of course, the book of the month for November for EW10, Women Made New, Reflections on Adversity, Transformation, and Healing by Kristalina Everett. Check that out, a very popular book, a popular authoress. And now we turn to the one and only Father Spitzer out on the West Coast and welcome him in once more and ask for him to kick things off with a prayer as always. As a, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask that you send your Holy Spirit down upon us this day, Doug, myself, our whole audience, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. Asking all of these things through Jesus our Lord, amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. And we're coming up here in the States on a big midterm election uh, coming up next Tuesday. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, a lot of issues that are out there. Uh, you know, the, there's been cases made to try to use the Dobbs decision to try to gin up, I would say, mostly Democratic voters. And uh, one of the things that's interesting, a story came out um, just recently, I guess on Halloween, mm -hmm. uh, the fact is, following the Supreme Court's de facto overturning of Roe v. Wade with the Dobbs decision, uh, the number of abortions across the United States has dropped by thousands. There, 538 uh, estimates that there's 10,570 fewer abortions than would have been expected prior to the Dobbs decision. So for people who didn't think it mattered, uh, it does matter. It matters to those 10,570 babies and the women who would have had to deal with uh, the after effect of the abortion. So keep that in mind that when people are voting. That is terrific news. Yeah, when people are voting uh, <laughs> in the next couple of days because there are certain states who are trying to reestablish this kind of uh, destruction of children and uh, keep that in mind that, uh, that keeping things reduced at least if not excluded is protecting the unborn at a, at a great level so we should thank all the people over the years who worked so hard to get that done and the Supreme Court justices who, who did that. Speaking of Supreme Court justices, one of the ones they blame, mm -hmm. of course, is Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, 
And uh, recently, <laughs> a letter asked Penguin Random House to reevaluate its decision to publish her book. Okay? The argues that Justin Barrett's yeah. vote in June in favor of Overton's way represented an attack on human rights, including the rights of privacy, self-determination, bodily autonomy, along with federal right to abortion in the United States. They received 625 signatures from authors, translators, and agents, um, and 75 who identified themselves as Penguin Random employees. And again, tried to get this book not published. Uh, Penguin has said, no, we're going to publish it anyway. But, you know, it's amazing all these people who are into free speech and talk and dialogue, <laughs> yeah. uh, but don't want you to be able to write, uh, print your book. So. Yeah, no, it uh, doesn't surprise me in the least. I think uh, obviously they forgot about the right to life of the unborn child uh, when they mentioned all of those rights. And by the way, the right to life uh, is uh, guaranteed in our de Declaration of Independence. Uh, but uh, all the other rights so mentioned in that letter are not mentioned mm -hmm. either in the Declaration of the Constitution. So uh, it's just another interesting uh, maneuver reinterpretation of rights and uh, of course they've turned the word into a euphemism anyway to right. mean whatever they want it to mean Absolutely. so um, yeah I'm not surprised in the least and poor old uh, uh, thank goodness Penguin and uh, Penguin Random House uh, stuck with their principles right. uh, and um, and uh, went ahead and did the right thing uh, to publish a book because of its scholarly merits, not because uh, it addresses one particular side's political right. ambitions. Absolutely. And speaking of the abortion issue, you know, we've been told how everybody's so pro-abortion really in the states, and obviously there's different surveys, but here's an interesting uh, anecdotal test. Uh, and at least this was as of last week. The pro-abortion movie Call Jane, starring Elizabeth Banks, bombs at box office on opening weekend. And of course, Call Jane is a dramatization of the Jane Collective. Remember the ones who were uh, attacking the yep. clinics recently? Uh, yep. uh, provided yep. illegal abortions during the late 60s and early 70s. Banks plays a suburban housewife who seeks an abortion due to a heart condition, of course. Uh, puts her life at risk. Yeah. Uh, she crosses paths with Jane's, whose leader, Sigourney Weaver, uh, I guess she's still an alien, uh, becomes a friend. And, um, you know, obviously, uh, I guess maybe the creature coming out yeah. of the, the, the stomach is allowed to be stomach, destroyed yeah. in her mind. And last week, uh, yeah. Cold Jane teamed up with Planned Parenthood and the Abortion Care Network to organize free screenings uh, for this particular program. And uh, we're very happy if it bombs even more so in the near future. But it also indicates that for as much as there may be people who reluctantly in their own mind are caught up in being pro-choice, it doesn't mean they want to celebrate abortions. You know, that's right. And uh, uh, just two other thoughts. Number one, that movie, Mar I think it was uh, Marilyn or something of that nature. Right, on one Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe. Monroe. Right, right. Uh, yeah, that was actually turned out to be a very pro-life kind of a message mm -hmm. amidst uh, some other more seedy elements of the movie, but uh, but definitely was pro-life in its messaging. The other thing kind of interesting, too, was the Gallup poll a while back 
that uh, showed that Americans, you know, with respect to um, uh, abortion, uh, certainly do not favor second trimester abortions. I think that was 55 percent right. against, uh, and third trimesters, uh, certainly 72 percent, something of that nature, were against. Abortions in the third trimester. It might have been even higher than those statistics, but uh, definitely, um, uh, America. You, you don't want to ever make the generalization right. that Americans are pro-abortion, but uh, they they certainly have more uh, indifference to first uh, trimester abortions, but not to second and third trimester abortions. So. Um, Anyway, um, uh, I think we need to reverse mm. that with good education, uh, that people will really see that that single-celled zygote is um, the cell that will not only give rise to every cell in a person's body throughout the rest of their life, but will also unify those cells uh, in that body throughout the rest of that human being's life. So um, I think if we can mm. continue to educate and continue to show uh, that the substance is completely there of a human being, all that's needed is kind of unraveling. Um, uh, I think it, it would right. be very, very uh, uh, important uh, to, uh, to make that uh, very clear and manifest. Absolutely. <clears throat> Another story uh, out of Canada. Uh, the Catholic population mm -hmm. in Canada has declined by almost 2 million people in the last 10 years. The Canadian census is found in a report that indicates religiously unaffiliated now outnumber the number of Catholics. So it went from about uh, Catholic Canadians declined to 10.9 million from uh, about 29 percent, almost 30 percent in the country. Uh, and that population had been mm -hmm. at 12.8 million. And just 50, mm -hmm. a little over 50 percent Canadians, about 20 million, now identify as Christian, which is a decline from mm -hmm. 67 percent in 2011. In fact, Quebec is the only major Catholic province, uh, but Catholic numbers declined considerably. In 2011, 75 percent approximately Quebec uh, citizens said they were Catholic. Now it's down to about 50 percent. So things are not going yeah. well north of the border. And we've also seen that with some of the draconian laws, mm -hmm. especially relating to things like euthanasia, right? Oh, yeah. I think um, uh, the process of secularization is pretty insidious. I mean, certainly, um, you know, people have not been tracking, keeping up with the scientific data uh, that is out there that is showing uh, not only the existence of God, but continues uh, to have mounting evidence for um, uh, the existence of, of an afterlife and continuing uh, to... Um, to uh, mount evidence for uh, Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. not only as historical, but as crucified, uh, as described in the Gospels, and risen as well. Mm -hmm. as, and we have talked about that many times, uh, manifest on the Shroud of Turin, and of course also with respect to uh, uh, Eucharistic miracles, etc. Mm -hmm. What interests me is that all of this scientific data is just, in the United States at least, you know, I have no difficulty putting it out there on my websites. Uh, you know, modgetcenter.com, et cetera, or talking about it on this program. Uh, but I just don't see the evidence of it uh, going on in Canada, and I'm not sure why. Mm -hmm. um, the, a lot of the research that's being done that's unearthing this science has definitely been uh, being done in the United States. So uh, what, what has, you know, come out 
with respect to you know, Stephen Hawking and Thomas Hertog before Stephen died, um, you know, indicating that, that uh, they didn't believe in an infinite multiverse or eternal inflation, proclaiming the need for a beginning, mm -hmm. even of a multiverse, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things, I mean, uh, I, I mean, they're just widely known uh, in the United States. It just seems like in Canada, there's, there, uh, you know, I, uh, maybe they're, they're not hearing about it. I do not know. Uh, but why the secularization? But that's just a tip of the iceberg. I think the moral issues are also there, that the more the culture inclines toward a secular viewpoint on morality, particularly mm -hmm. with respect to sexual issues, uh, as we see this thing continuing to occur, um, I think um, you're going to find, um, as uh, our own statistics in the United States manifest themselves, I think you're going to find that um, uh, you're not only going to get a, a decline in religion, um, but you're also going to get uh, a decline in emotional health, a severe, right. um, a significant mm -hmm. and severe increase in depression rates, anxiety rates, and suicide rates, etc. Right. So I think all of these things are going to take place because morality is not just linked to religion. Uh, morality is also um, linked to um, uh, you know the emotional uh, health and the relational health of, of the culture. We know that there are you know um, correlations, direct correlations um, that we can see between cohabitation length and the decline in religion among people. So um, you know people think the sexual morality thing, well that's just a private decision, right. it's a victimless crime, but you can actually correlate um, an increase in uh, the use of pornography with a decline in religion. And you can definitely um, show an increase uh, in people having um, uh, uh, sexuality outside of marriage and a decline in religion. You can definitely see the length of time in cohabitation and a decline in religion. So, I mean, these sexual issues, you might say, well, what, they, what has it got to do with anything in religion? Apparently everything. Right. Because once the, the, the sexual uh, norms are just cast aside, it seems that religion is also being cast aside with it, almost as if you're playing to another, as I would call it, darker force mm -hmm. that uh, seizes upon the opportunity uh, that's taking place in the, in the lack of responsible use uh, of sexuality and, and its uh, um, you know, uh, procreative uh, uh, proper place right. in marriage. So, um, you know, my, my thought is uh, it has everything to do with it. We don't understand it fully, but the correlations are there. They, they are definitely there. So it's, like I said, it's not just a matter of knowing the science or following the science. It's not just a matter of knowing all of the new evidence for God and following that from these medical studies of near-death experiences or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also definitely a matter of morality and seemingly sexual morality and, um, well, I'll put it this way, marriage ethics, if I can mm -hmm. put it that way, and its relationship to sexual uh, ethics, those, that marital norm, boy, if marriage is strong, religion is strong. If religion is strong, marriage is strong. So as the Thornton studies indicate, uh, it's a reciprocal effect, a reciprocal good effect.
However, um, once you start breaking down the notion of marriage, and the best way to do that, of course, is through just licentious sexual expression, right? Mm -hmm. the, the marital bond, the commitment bond that's, that's you know, impressed upon us with, you know, the, how important sexuality is within that commitment and, and then that exclusive commitment of marriage. Once you start tampering with sexuality, you tamper with marriage. Once you tamper with marriage, you can see the decline of religion that, that takes place along with it. And it really, I think it's all part of the weave. You know, the great cry for autonomous freedom uh, without the, the, you know, the, the freedom that accepts the responsibility uh, to be not only a good citizen, but also uh, to, to be a generous person, mm -hmm. uh, not to be an ego comparative person, but to, you know, try to, you know, lar express largesse in, in the best possible mm -hmm. Christian way. So the idea, you know, is, um, is I think there's a big correlation between all of these things. I don't have it all worked out in my mind, but mm -hmm. another book is coming uh, <laughs> between these correlations. I, I hate to say it. <laughs> I hate to say it. <laughs> anyway. So uh, I, I leave you with that thought. That's but okay. There is there is <laughs> definitely a correlation. It's not just the science and the evidence. It's definitely the the, the bond of marriage and the threat that our view of marriage and our view of sexuality right. really does pose uh, to the ongoing, um, you know, exclusive commitment of marriage. Right. You think of the trust element and then the guilt element that comes in right away and, oh, yeah. and how that works on Absolutely. destroying the trust. So. Uh, absolutely. Okay. One other thing I wanted to bring up before we got to the, our uh, viewers' questions. Uh, you know, we did some great studies recently on the elections that EWTN can, should check out uh, on CNA uh, and mm -hmm. on uh, EWTN News Nightly about uh, Catholic thought mm -hmm. related to politics and other important issues. But this was another study, uh, a smaller one, that was done by uh, the DeSales Media and the Venia Research, which found that one in five devout Catholics are uncomfortable sharing their faith. It says a significant study conducted uh, in partnership showed that, uh, you know, 3,200 people, and these were people who viewed their faith as central to their lives, but still, and wanted mm -hmm. to learn more about their faith, but they all said basically uh, that for the vast majority of them, it was tough for them to share their faith. Not a big surprise, is it? Uh, no, I think there is so much pressure out there uh, simply because the word Catholic and the moral standards proposed by the Catholic Church um, you know, which are all related to marriage at the end of the day. Let's, I mean, uh, the moral standards that are so, quote-unquote, offensive to the secular culture are all related to the sanctity of marriage, to the exclusive commitment of marriage, to childbearing within marriage. All of these things are definitely under attack. And so um, I think, you know, even though Catholics hold them as sacrosanct, right? These these uh, norms, these moral norms of marriage, uh, and and the and the protection of marriage and in our conception of sexuality, mm -hmm. they know that the culture around them does not see marriage as primary over sexuality itself. Does not see commitment 
as a priority over sexuality itself, does not see um, the idea of self-giving love as um, a priority uh, over sexuality itself. Uh, in fact, I think it, the culture finds it exceedingly difficult to even conceive of friendship mm -hmm. uh, independently of sexuality, uh, you know, as well. So it's it's really um, we've got a. In my view, from a moral point of view, mm -hmm. it's a sick culture. Uh, and it's a sick culture because without a healthy view of marriage and a strong uh, view of exclusive commitment in marriage and self-sacrifice within the marital bond, you're going to have a, just a weak need culture. That's all there is to it. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, given that, that fact, um, I think we're going to have a... Uh, uh, you know, problem surviving. Uh, you know, I, I feel almost uh, uh, sort of the decadence of Rome prior to the conquest by the barbarians, but right. it's a decadence that we have created from within. Mm -hmm. We have thrown off even a Roman valuation of marriage. Uh, we are so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, loosely affiliated with the marital bond right now. Um, you know, in our you know cry for freedom and open sexuality, etc. I just think we're destroying our inner selves. I mean, individually, but as we do so, we're also undermining the culture. We're becoming weaker and weaker in our moral sense, weaker and weaker in our ability to commit ourselves, weaker and weaker in our ability to sacrifice ourselves for our spouses and our children, mm -hmm. etc. We uh, we are becoming a weak culture, right. and uh, as a result of that. One of these days, you know, we're going to find ourselves being bad actors in the world, too. And, and you say, oh, that'll never happen in the United States. Oh, yeah? Mm -hmm. Well, all you got to do is just undermine all these moral standards. All you got to do is just move toward moral relativism a few more notches. All you got to do is undermine the commitment uh, in, within marriage just a little bit more and the commitment to family and children just a little bit more. H how do you know we're not going to become bad actors? I, I think, unfortunately, this has much, much more, uh, you know, negative influence, not just on the emotional state, but on the spiritual state and the relational state of human beings. And my new book, uh, which should be coming out this month, mm -hmm. uh, Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, uh, makes that case statistically from secular right. studies. So I can just show you that it affects not only emotional health, but, you know, the secular uh, views of morality also affect, right. and sexuality and marriage, also affect spiritual health right. and relational health. You and can see people moving into, you know, lifestyles that are really, really, um, uh, you know, contra, um, you know, marriage. And uh, just look at what happens. Like I said, they become mm -hmm. less religious uh, all the time. The more uh, licentious the, the lifestyle, the more the longer the cohabitation rate, the longer um, you're involved in a homosexual lifestyle, the longer, right, you just watch those depression rates increase, you right. just watch, um, you know, the relational health decrease, you just watch the religious, the spiritual, I mean, the, the, the you know, the, uh, the, you know, when the Pew survey did the, the you know, the looking at religion and, and comparing, uh, you know, religion um, between those, uh, you know, involved in homosexual lifestyle versus those involved in a, um, uh, 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 you know, a, a family or, or a heterosexual right. lifestyle or no, no lifestyle at all, uh, you know, you take a look at the, the general population and it's just almost half 
of the religious participation. I mean, double the rate of atheism if you move into that, um, you know, that uh, area of the uh, homosexual lifestyle uh, over the course of time. And then, of course, religious participation, Bible reading, uh, um, and um, and uh, prayer are almost halved. Um, and so you look at that, and, and it's pretty concerning. I mean, the porno pornography statistics, that's the one that, you know, uh, the, this University of Oklahoma study just shows, you know, the, the longer you're watching that stuff, the more the decline in religious participation, the more the decline in belief in God, it just goes down, down, down. And so, you, uh, right. you know, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, either and, these studies, I mean, they're secular studies, so either they're dead wrong right. or there's something to the correlation between religion, morality, sexuality and marriage. Right, and, and what that leads to is objectification and, and, and total uh, mm -hmm. utilitarianism where people just become objects oh. for your pleasure. Yeah. And, and there's, there's yeah, no exactly. emotion related to it and, and, you know, those kind of things. I saw that with the Playboy channel and things like mm -hmm. that years and years ago and how that impacted yeah. people just working on it. So let's get to uh, yeah. a couple of uh, questions Sorry. here before the break. Uh, go on there. <laughs> uh, yeah. Dear Father Spitzer, how are fetal stem cells obtained? Must they come from a living baby? If so, how is cutting up a living baby and removing his organs not murder? Is it true that the late-term planned abortions with babies purposely born alive are the source for fetal stem cell experimentation? This is Kelly. Uh, well, Kelly, you know, uh, if you're talking about fetal stem cells uh, per se, yeah, that's why the, the church is against uh, uh, fetal stem cells because, of course, it's going to uh, require um, mm -hmm. that um, there be some form of a living, uh, um, uh, we would call it a living human being, uh, that is going to, in some sense, have to provide those stem cells. Now, you can get some uh, stem cells from uh, um, the uh, the mother's um, uh, the um, uh, umbilical cord, mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, and so that's another possible non-invasive or uh, uh, you know um, uh, non uh, I would call it it's not an immoral way of obtaining um, those uh, cells. Mm -hmm. However, the best method now is adult stem cells, you know, they can just come in, take a little bit of fat from the under part of your arm there and or some other place on the body. They can convert it back essentially to a pluripotent cell. And so, you know, it, it functions, it, it can be turned into any mm -hmm. kind of cell uh, that's required, right? It, in fact, it's almost totipotent at that point. It mm -hmm. could become any uh, cell. Even if you took some um, some of these, uh, derived the, 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 the cells from the skin um, mm -hmm. or the fat underneath the skin, etc. So um, these methods right now, I mean the gold standard mm -hmm. really for stem cells right now is adult stem cells, especially if it's going to go to someone like yourself, mm -hmm. right? Then you, there's no chance of rejection right. uh, if you've got those stem cells from yourself. So um, I would say there's really no reason to be using uh, uh, fetal stem cells so, and certainly no reason so why to do, be getting them so from why, a, why do they do it then? Why don't they just say, well, let's get rid of this big problem and these people all upset about it, we'll just use the adult stem cells which work just as well. Well, 
I mean, I, I guess, the, well, I mean, from a historical point of view, mm -hmm. um, the fetal stem cell um, uh, technology was developed before the... I um, see. Okay. Before the uh, adult one, but then the adult one came. You know, people were saying this adult stem cell um, method is going to come. Um, I, I know it, it goes back to a person in Japan. I'm forgetting his mm. his um, his name now. Uh, but uh, basically, that he you know he was just on the verge of, of getting this adult stem cell uh, method, so he could sort of retroject it backwards uh, to a totipotent state. And um, I think that um, uh, maybe that f couple of years, few years beforehand, uh, people were starting, you know, like Arnold Schwarzenegger got out there and were kind of pushing along, as I recall. Now, this mm -hmm. is my, my ancient and aged memory here. But I think, uh, you know, people were really pushing it along. And then all of a sudden, when the, when the gold standard came out with the adult st uh, mm -hmm. stem cells, I think people all of a sudden said, oh, uh, you know, maybe we should be doing this. And then it got really perfected. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with removing some st uh, uh, stem cells from, your, um, from the fat underneath your arm or someplace else. Right. And, you know, uh, and then going ahead and, um, uh, you know, culturing it and t turning it back to a, a totipotent state and then, you know, using it uh, to cure, you know, a, a problem you might have with uh, some other organ in your body, your eyes, your, your brain or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, these things are uh, now available. I think it was the time lag to begin with. But then, of course, you know, the... Uh, the abortion lobby, and mm. uh, I don't know if Planned Parenthood or others were involved in it, to be really honest with you, but I know there were some powerful organizations, um, that, and, and some of them might have been involved with abortion. I'm not sure altogether, but uh, obviously um, uh, there are stem cells to be had from those procedures, and perhaps maybe right. uh, there was some political uh, pressure to maintain the fetal stem cells. But again, I'm not sure of these things, and I, I don't want to be, I, I'd have to go back, do the research, and get the data. And maybe some one of the viewers can supply me with the data. Uh, but um, I do know there was political pressure exerted, mm -hmm. and I do know that um, um, maybe some of that might have come from people who could have benefited uh, from uh, you know, the stem cells coming from maybe aborted fetuses. Right. Yeah, well, not to make light of it, but at least on the adult stem side, I'm, uh, stem cell side, I'm pretty lucky because I had a lot of fat under my arm. So that'll allow me to be protected <laughs> in the near future. With that, we're going to take a break and we'll get back with Father Spitzer and your questions right after this. Stay with us. We do appreciate you staying with us here in Father Spitzer's universe. We're going to be talking about deadly sins from Father's book, Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives. But first, we turn back to Father and some of your questions you sent in recently. Dear Father Spitzer, I recently bought a Catholic book for our parish priest that I thought he would find interesting. He told me that if it doesn't have the Holy Church's imprimatur on it, he won't read it. With all due respect to your amazing books, does that mean that books without the imprimatur are not supposed to be read or believed? Monica. 
Oh no! I mean, I mean, an imprimatur is a good thing right. uh, to guarantee. Uh, you know, so an imprimatur does uh, signify that there's nothing objectionable uh, to Catholic doctrine in mm. it. But the absence of an imprimatur doesn't mean that it has uh, any uh, morally objectionable. Uh, that, that it has morally objectionable uh, content mm -hmm. in it. It just means that the author uh, didn't submit it um, to the process of um, getting uh, an imprimatur. So um, now uh, my books have an imprimatur because uh, uh, obviously it's a requirement uh, for um, uh, Ignatius Press and mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know Sophia. But I don't think my book, New Proofs for the Existence of God, which is an Erdman's book. Mm -hmm. Don't think it has the imprimatur, but all my other ones do, mm -hmm. uh, you know. So, uh, uh, and I just regularly submit it, but um, but uh, it, you know, um, a lot of e authors don't even know mm -hmm. uh, to to submit it for an imprimatur. It's not required at all. Some publishers do require it, so um, uh, which I you know think is perfectly uh, solid and a good thing to do. Right. Uh, but. Um, but if uh, if it doesn't have it, you just have to judge the book by its content and not by its uh, lack of imprimatur on the cover. Right, exactly, and uh, that the idea, like you said, it's not that they even that who gives the imprimatur says they agree with everything. They just said there's nothing in the book against yeah. the teaching of the faith, right? Yeah, basically, that's what, correct. That and the Neil yeah. Opstadt, right? Neil okay. Opstadt, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. very good. Another question, uh, dear Father Spitzer, I'm so sad when. Priests repeatedly read the consecration from a script and not from memory. It would mean so much to the congregation if the priest would look at us as Jesus did to his disciples at the Last Supper. This is the heart of the Mass and should be treated accordingly. Gene. Well, Gene, here's my thought. Um, well, if they were all blind, they'd have to do that. Just kidding. Because, <laughs> um, uh, of course, I memorize everything. Mm -hmm. But I, I would think, you know, I think that a lot of people are just not accustomed. Uh, to to memorizing, uh, and, and I think even you know for them uh, you know uh, to depart from the text in a big public forum uh, creates a little bit of nervousness. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say 99.9 percent of priests do know the words of consecration by heart. They really don't have to um, look at the text, but I think it's the nervousness of taking your eyes off the text. Um, you know, as you know, being blind myself, you know, I, I don't worry about, you know, memorizing <laughs> things or, you know, taking my eyes off the text. And mm -hmm. I, I haven't for years and years. I just never been a, a reader of a lecture. I, I, you know, I started, you know, my academic career once. I was reading a paper on philosophy and mathematics uh, when I was at uh, Georgetown, and. Um, I just didn't want to get anything wrong, mm -hmm. and I was reading the thing, and two of my good colleagues came up to me and said, "Gosh, Spitzer, you know, honestly, you you give such a great lecture. What in the world are you doing reading this thing? It it sounded not that good, <laughs> which meant awful. Very and Roman so, uh, of you, I have I to just, tell you, from my experience yes. to go to conferences in Rome. Uh, uh, <laughs> they start oh, reading yeah, their papers. <laughs> oh my lord! Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, but it, I, it really, I have to tell you, it, it was uh, it was an eye opener to me, so to speak, and uh, so I basically um, uh, stopped doing it. I stopped uh, mm. ever reading a, a, an academic paper. I just decided it's worth 
putting in the time to remember it. Right. But like I said, people who are used to reading things are really nervous mm -hmm. about looking up and then the, the panic of, I'm going to have to, what if I mess up in the words of consecration? What if I don't right. say this right? Or something of that nature. And they just think it's too much trouble. I'm going to just read it and right. be safe. And I think that's just, uh, but like I said, most priests know the words of consecration. Most people, um, most priests could do Eucharistic prayer too out of their heads. Wow. They really could. Um, and they don't have to, so they don't. Um, but I think they could. And so, um, you know, it's just a matter of do you feel comfortable doing it? And since the church right. certainly doesn't require it, uh, you'd really have to be motivated to do it. Uh, for the reasons that you suggested, Gene. Right. Well, the one thing good about it, you know, if he's reading it, it's actually what it's supposed to be rather than somebody who's freelancing. Yeah. You know, so you got to be. Yeah, absolutely. You know, which makes people yeah. nervous sometimes in the past, too. One more oh, yeah. question before we get to the book. Oh, yeah. Dear Father Spitzer, my brother left the church and now likes to argue with me about my faith. And his latest mm -hmm. is that if one were to accept the virgin birth, that would mean that Jesus had only Mary's genetic material, and that would mean he had double X chromosomes, making him genetically a female. Since he identified as a male, this proves he accepts the whole transgender movement. How do I respond, Bobby? Okay, well, Bobby, here's the deal. First of all, Jesus wouldn't have double X chromosomes from his mother. That's the first thing to note. Uh, the second, uh, he, he would have, of course, the X chromosome he would normally get from his mother. But um, uh, there is obviously a Y chromosome in Jesus. So um, where did he get the Y chromosome from? Now, uh, you know, if you're asking me, uh, God is his father. Mm. God can give him human genetic material mm. if God can create all the apparatus for a human being and give a transphysical soul to that human being and integrate that soul with the human biological apparatus and its genetic mm. development. So that's the first thing. So, that, you know, uh, first of all, you know, you get a single X chromosome from the mom, not a double X chromosome. Nice try. The second thing, of course, is that um, why can't God give uh, human genetic material? He can do anything else in creation. Why can't he give his son a human genetic material? Just a sideline, uh, just for the, the, you know, just to really mm -hmm. get you uh, intrigued. When you look at these Eucharistic miracles, there's one very interesting factor in the Eucharistic miracles, particularly the 1996 Buenos Aires miracle and the 2006 uh, Tixla, Mexico uh, miracle. And that is that there, even though there is genetic molecular content microscopically you know, visible, um, uh, uh, microscopically accessible mm -hmm. um, in um, the uh, tissue that, there's tissue right growing out of these Eucharistic hosts. You take a sample of that tissue and you bring it to a ge genetic lab. Mm -hmm. There's the genetic, uh, the, the genetic material. Mm -hmm. um, so we know there's genetic material there. However, every time um, they try to do a polymerase chain reaction to amplify the DNA profile, Nothing shows up. Hmm. Beat that. Now, in the Buenos Aires miracle, okay, you could say that's 
because they left the, the host in the water for three years, the, you know, the tissue, basically all the genetic material, the DNA, uh, the amplifiable profile was basically destroyed over the course of time, mm -hmm. no problem, right? So you could say that, um, but not in the case of the Tixla miracle. In the case of the Tixla miracle, um, uh, this guy, Dr. Um, uh, Castagnon Gomez, Ricardo mm -hmm. Castagnon Gomez, he basically got that those samples down to the genetics lab, by the way, which he paid for out of his own pocket, got them down to the genetics lab um, as soon as possible. I think he probably did it uh, within a few months um, after the uh, actual Tixla miracle had occurred. Now that, you know, by the way, there's in that sample of tissue growing out of the host, in that sample, there are actually leukocytes, there are actual macrophages engulfing lipids, right? Doing healing activity. There's white blood cells, right? Living white blood cells and living red active blood cells in the blood that is being exuded from the tissue in the Tixla host. Now, how decayed can the sample be uh, to the point of giving no polymerase chain mm -hmm. reaction amplifiable profile. How can decay can be? And by the way, that's the question that Dr. Um, Ricardo um, uh, Castagnon Gomez asked him in the book, right, that he wrote on this miracle. By the way, uh, there's 13 appendices in that book, uh, uh, all of the scientific appendices from all the laboratory reports mm -hmm. that he himself uh, had paid for for the uh, uh, for the examination, scientific examination of the host, the histopathological ones, the DNA ones, etc. Now, the one thing that's very interesting uh, in, in you know is this absence of uh, you know an amplifiable um, um, uh, uh, profile through uh, polymerase chain reaction, and so uh, uh, you know in light of that, you have to ask yourself. What is God doing here? Mm -hmm. Well, clearly, he, you know, if he did give some kind of uh, genetic contribution, uh, uh, you know, uh, human genetic contribution uh, to Mary, and I would have to believe that he did mm -hmm. to incarnate his son, um, the, you know, um, into, uh, uh, you know, Mary himself, you know, the, the, the divine person into Mary. Uh, that's, that's my own belief, right? That's mm. not any church teaching, uh, but uh, that's my uh, explanation, that mm. maybe he doesn't want that contribution to be known. Maybe right. he just decided to keep it hidden. I don't know, but I'll tell you something about this DNA thing. It's really mysterious, and it comes out, I mean, writ large in these Eucharistic miracles, particularly that of Tixla, Mexico. By the way, Dr. Casignon Gomez was an atheist, uh, really a strident atheist mm -hmm. for many, many years. After investigating those Eucharistic miracles from a scientific point of view, he is not only now a, ca a practicing fervent Catholic, he goes around uh, you know, South America, uh, North America, uh, preaching uh, truly uh, the right. real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and now is basically uh, 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 you know, helping people right. to understand the spirituality of the Eucharist. I'm not kidding. Total right. He'd be perfect because so obviously you, the church yeah. is trying to promote the real presence and the understanding of the Eucharist uh, uh, yeah. as we speak over the next yeah. couple of years. So let me jump to your book, uh, yeah. Chapter 5, The Deadly Sins, Gluttony, Greed, Lust, Sloth, and Vanity. I'm going to skip the first four basically uh, yeah. and move to vanity. 
But uh, you talk about the <laughs> sins are present in extra biblical literature as well, like by Virgil, Shakespeare, Dickens, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and Fitzgerald, the central yeah. themes and tragic dramas and narratives. Why, why are those so important to those kinds of stories? Well, you know, the, you know, vanity is like, it's one of the primary sins of our culture. And it's omnipresent uh, in those stories because it's the fatal flaw that kills the main character. Mm -hmm. It always seems if it's not pride, you know, some kind of a power trip or a desire to dominate mm -hmm. another human uh, being or, uh, you know, feeling that you are utterly superior uh, to another human being such that you should be able to control them because you should be, since you are their superior, mm -hmm. you should be, you know, be able to have power of them. So that's, that's pride. I separate pride from vanity because vanity is not so much I need to control you because I'm superior to you. Uh, the, the vanity thing is look at me. Mm -hmm. Aren't I great? You know, and so it's almost like, uh, uh, you know, am I not irresistible? Am I not the most esteemable and admirable person you have ever seen in your entire life? Of course, I'm saying this with respect to myself in such total jest. It's unbelievable. But the point is that you want this more than anything in your life. So, of course, it becomes a tragedy, right? All tragic mm -hmm. characters have a fatal flaw. And the fatal flaw in all those stories, right, um, and all the, the, you know, essential to these characters is the vanity of the person. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, uh, you know, you don't have to, you know, go very far to find um, vanity as the fatal flaw. And you know who does it so well is C.S. Lewis in that book, The Great Divorce, yeah, right, where right. all those people are going on the bus ride from hell up to heaven. And of course, uh, when they uh, get up there, they have a choice whether they, you know, should proceed. You know, they come to kind of the borderline, as it right. were, and everything is just, uh, uh, you know, they're confronted with some kind of uh, deadly sin that's in them. And, you know, it's either give up the deadly sin um, uh, and you can just go walk right into heaven. It'll be hard to give it up, but you can walk right into heaven or don't give up the deadly sin. But if you don't, the price is you got to go back to hell. Right. And, you know, a good number of these characters choose to go back to hell. But there's about three of them that, um, you know, uh, uh, Lewis gets right. just on the vanity thing. So right. the vanity of appearance, the right. vanity of the You've artist the story who thinks everybody here. else. Right. That, yeah. Yeah. He, needs, he needs publicity. I need yeah. to have publicity here. Yeah. There needs to be publicity right. for what I'm doing. Yeah. Don't, they, don't people know who I yeah. uh, Aren't I important, going to be important, <laughs> right, in heaven? That's right. <laughs> well known in heaven, of course, the, uh, uh, the, the, the guy who comes down to meet him says, well, no, everybody's kind of of equal importance mm. in heaven. That does it. I'm going, I'm going back, back down to hell where right. I can be marginally better. So, uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, uh, but anyway, the vanity thing right. is done so well. So I just pointed out because I think our culture, you look Absolutely. at just, just appearance alone or, you know, ego comparative advantage. And look at Instagram and Facebook. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, if you don't have vanity, I mean, Vanity Fair, one of our fine little, uh, <laughs> uh, right. you know, uh, appropriately named, yeah. uh, let's call them journals, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, loosely. And uh, so all of these things, right, are uh, pretty much uh, 
um, you know, I think, um, you know, it, it right. kind of manifests the, the, the deadly sin of our culture right. in so many different ways. And uh, we're obsessed with it. So that's why I, I stuck in those, those little uh, authors and literary pieces because, uh, you know, it's right. really, you know, vanity so... Right. You know, it's there. It's right. that's it's how in Wall Street too. It's not right. just greed that gets bud. It's vanity that vanity, gets bud. He wants the penthouse. Yeah. Right. It's interesting yeah. too because Sorry. you mentioned Vanity Fair and a, a famous book, obviously, yeah. where obviously the female yeah. character in it it doesn't work yeah. out so well for her either. Uh, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> exactly. In that in that thing, but yeah, you point out. Yeah. I thought this was interesting, and you jumped ahead. But you went to Lewis describes a woman goes to has ventured a little way into the outskirts of heaven, discovered that her appearance, which was extraordinarily good by standards of the world and hell, was vastly inferior inferior to the appearance of the solid, luminescent humans in heaven, and that was a a, a, a disappointment for her. Oh, yeah. Right. So she's trying to hide behind every tree and rock and so forth and so on. She doesn't want to be exposed. But see, they're always greeted by somebody who comes down from heaven to talk them into staying, you know, staying and, and coming up to heaven. And uh, finally, of course, she just says, I just can't do this, you know. She, she's just too scared to reveal, you know, that for a single second. He says, it'll mm. all be over soon, right? right. You know, you just... You just Come on out, you know. Everybody's been there. Everybody knows what you look like. He said, "I just can't possibly do it." I mean, people looking at me and you know, uh, you know, and my my vast inferiority. I, I I'm going back to where I can be safe. Right. You know, he turns to hell. So, uh, but you know, the point is pretty clear. How you know, vanity can just clutch onto us. Right. And um, and when it does. Um, you know, uh, we're so reticent to give up any marginal advantage, any ego comparative advantage. I mean, these, I, I shouldn't say mm. this, but our kids get so, they are reading their Instagram. They're looking at their popularity compared to other people's right. popularity. How many and likes their did image I get? Compared right? to other, My likes versus your exactly. likes. And, uh, right, absolutely. Yeah. And that's why the anxiety level is so high and the depression level is so high. It's, gosh, it's ego comparative advantage gone crazy. And vanity is at the heart of it. Though, you know, if you called it that, people wouldn't recognize it in themselves. I mean, honestly, I think a lot of people would say, I'm not vain. You know, I, I, you know, I, I don't care what people think. Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> you know, I mean, I care what people think. Everybody and, does. And I don't even yeah, have yeah, a right. Facebook account. Yeah. Right. Everybody yeah. does. Let's face it. Well, to go yeah. back to the story of the artist, you said, let me go. Damn it all. One has one's duty to the future of art. I must go back to my friends. I must write an article. <laughs> there must be a manifesto. Yeah. We must start a periodical. Yeah. We must have publicity. Yeah. Let me go. This is beyond a joke. And without listening to the spirit's reply, the specter vanished. Exactly. He just uh, chose chose the bus ride back. He uh, he couldn't uh, couldn't stand to be there in heaven for one more second, where everyone would be uh, more or less equal to right. him, uh, not only in artistic talent but in everything else. Right. They would be brought to a full human, transcendent perfection and joy. And he just thought, my real joy 
as being better than the rest of inferior humanity. Right. I need to, you know, go back and start a movement and a periodical and a journal. Right, exactly. <laughs> I love that line. Yeah. Once again, Lewis <laughs> illustrates how ego gratification, comparative advantage, as you were saying, and fame can blind us to the reality of our own true selves. Dignity, destiny, goodness, yeah. and beauty. The ghost is so enamored of his own yeah. talent, recognition, and status, he cannot fathom being equivalent to everyone else in his true nature and glory. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and I have to say that, uh, you know, Lewis is just so brilliant in the portrayal, you know. <laughs> just, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, you know uh, anybody who would, you know, any club that would have me as a member, I'm right. not going to belong right. to, you know. Right. Well, he says here, uh, the idea is for, it, uh, about there's three, you talk about the willing adherence in three major ways. First, it replaces the true identity of the victim with a facade, a false identity that is admirable or beautiful to the external observer, but lacking in interior significance and substance. It isn't part of the problem with people mm -hmm. have is they create this facade, but they know the facade's not true, and they live in fear of yeah, someone seeing through the facade. Absolutely. Right. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I have to tell you, you know, that, uh, you know, um, uh, to try and protect your facade 24-7 and um, to, you know, just feel violated if someone should even tell the truth about yourself, you know, um, uh, you, you know, you look at that and you go, oh, my gosh, you know. But after a while, you know, if you finally get over yourself, uh, you know, you, you cease to get so embarrassed and cease to mm -hmm. get so uh, demonstrably angry and violated, you know, if somebody points out something. But boy, until that time, as vanity reigns supreme, it just has such a hold over the soul and it's very, very hard to, to right. overcome it. I mean, you know, uh, uh, you know, sometimes we just plain have to apologize, you know, we make right. a mistake in public or we do something, you know, that, uh, you know, I was in factual error or whatever the case may be. Uh, you just have to sit there and say, well, you know, uh, I'm human, you know, right. <laughs> that's, uh, that's all there is to it. But, uh, you know, uh, you can't know everything, you can't be everything. And, uh, you know, there's just, uh, you know, people, you know, they would like me to, uh, uh, to play baseball like the Philadelphia Phillies last night. Uh, that's not going to happen. So. <laughs> Hitting a lot of homers there, that's for sure. Of course, they claim oh, he was, yeah. they think was the pitcher five, was they think the pitcher was tipping off uh, tipped him off tipped him off yeah. with uh, yeah. the way he was kicking his leg out uh, yeah. kind of interesting yeah. and the way he was up. holding his glove yeah, yeah right picking yeah. it up well I always remember with that yeah. when you were talking about <clears throat> Rhett Butler has a great line in Gone with the Wind where he says uh, I apologize for all my yeah. shortcomings you know I mean so I mean you know it's uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, well, yeah, I'm sorry. Exactly. Either that or the Catholic yeah. mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Oh, yeah. Right. But I mean, anything which just expresses some form of uh, humility. So, uh, you know, and, and, you know, if somebody holds it, lords that over you, I tell you, their pride is going to be quite short lived. You know, um, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, pride goeth before the fall. fall so, right. uh, so uh, get ready. So, right. Yeah. And the whole idea, yep. as you said here, with the whole idea, what they used to do with the Romans, with the old glorious fleeting, they used to, uh, the, the uh, general coming yeah. in, like in Quo Vadis, 
where he stands behind Marcus yeah. Vinicius and says, remember, thou art only a man and all glory is fleeting. Yep, that's true. And that is true. And um, uh, if you don't remember that, uh, uh, you're going to have a real miserable life. And like I said, trying to protect your facade 24-7 is really hard to do. It's exhausting. So, uh, uh, all you need to, yeah, exhausting, yeah. Speaking of that, we are just out of time, Father, so yeah. we've exhausted our oh. hour. And so if you give us your blessing on the way out the door, that'd be great. Absolutely. Bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord of all humility, the Lord of all compassion, the Lord of all gentleness, reach down through his Holy Spirit and fill you with that compassion, that love, that gentleness and a humility of spirit so that you too may not only imitate him, but find your true joy in eternity with him in it. And may almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. Be well. We shall see you next week. And thank you so much for joining us. Remember, Father Spitzer's books and videos available through our EWTM Religious Catalog. We'll continue on with the deadly sins and vanity, and we will get to Sunset Boulevard. And our bookmark this weekend, uh, I had a fine interview with the one and only Dr. Ray Garendi, taught by 10. A psychologist's father learns from his 10 children. I thought he learned from a 10-year-old, but check that book out one by one way or the other. And Pope Francis' apostolic visit to, to Bahrain coming up uh, Thursday, November 3rd through Sunday, November 6th, Bahrain. Check EW10.com for events and time-specific coverage. If it's happening, EW10 will cover it. I'm Doug Keck. Join us next time in Father Spitzer's Universe. See you then. <laughs>